Hello and welcome to episode 104 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. This month I am covering the material for August 2022, um, but I'm not on my own this month. I am joined um, by Sonia Lennigan, who I've just been going through this with her of how to introduce her, and she, she was really pushing for me not to say very much at all, but I'm going to, I'm going to go through the full list. So uh, she's an immigration lawyer about town, as she puts it, but she's also a free movement author from time to time. She's an immigration and public law solicitor. Um, she's previously been at Hackney Law Centre. She's the former legal director at ILPA, currently a volunteer at Silos, a volunteer at the Unity Project, consultant solicitor at Saltworks. And uh, her main gig, I think it would be fair to say at the moment, is as the legal and policy director at Rainbow Migration. So Sonia, welcome on. Thanks, Conan. Yes, it was just too sad last month. <laughs> <laughs> tragic, tragic. Well, thank you for taking pity. Yeah, we all miss CJ. Yes, we do. We do. We do. <laughs> now, this month, we're going to start with a little bit of um, not quite the normal approach. So normally, we very rigidly stick to what happened in the previous month, and we try not to, to talk about things that happened more recently. But we've just had a uh, an incoming government and a change of Home Secretary and it feels like it would be a good idea, uh, even though that falls into September, a good idea to talk about it now, because it'll be old news by the time I'll be covering it next month. So there's two blog posts quickly to mention here, one about Pretty Patel called an unparalleled record of failure, another um, about Suella Bravman, the incoming Home Secretary, what kind of Home Secretary will she be? And um, I, I think the, the Pretty Patel post is, is pretty critical, I think it would be fair to say. Um, it's um, It focuses on very much her, her failures, the problems that she's had as Home Secretary, and just the total lack of, of, of policy success, particularly on small boat crossings. Um, but I do feel slightly guilty about that, because I, I think there have been perhaps one or two things that happened on her watch that, that are positive in nature. And I didn't mention the Hong Kong scheme for BNOs, for example, for British nationals overseas, which I think has been a significant success. So uh, I don't think I'm going to go back and edit that in, but uh, I think it'd be wrong not to not to mention it. And also, to be fair to her, the, the Ukraine scheme, which was an absolute car crash to begin with, has belatedly become, I think, a bit of a success. We've got over 100,000 Ukrainians have entered the UK. Um, so that's, that's, that's me trying to be fair to, to Patel. But if you want to read all about what a disaster she's been, very much that that blog post is for you. Um, Sonia, have, have you got any thoughts on on Priti Patel as our former Home Secretary? Uh, I think just that I would object to you crediting Ukraine success, uh, what success there has been of that scheme to her, because I think it has actually been taken away from her and it was dealt with by other departments. For example, DLUC dealt with a lot of it. And yeah, I'm just not convinced that she had that much to do with the Ukraine scheme in particular. So I'm just going to push back on that one. I don't no, have too, ab- too much praise for her. <laughs> that's absolutely fair. And, I, and yeah, if we if we think about it in that way, then she was certainly was responsible for that initial disastrous decision to impose visas. That was very much her exactly. decision. And then what successes we have seen later, you're, you're making the point that they weren't hers at all anyway. Um, so, okay, maybe I've been too fair, so to speak, to her there in the, in, in the podcast. And then looking ahead to, to Suella Braverman, you know, I think I've seen a lot of stuff circulating about uh, some of her more absurd public pronouncements, some of the really wacky, nonsensical stuff she's come out with, um, criticism of her kind of legal understanding and so on. I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a bit worried about her, though, because and the, the saving grace of, of Pretty Patel was that she was nasty and incompetent. And so she wasn't really able to follow through on 
um, the nasty things that she wanted to do, which contrasts with you know one of her predecessors, prominent predecessors, Theresa May, who was nasty and competent. She was really good at what she did, and that was disastrous for for so many people. And I, I don't know which of those sort of two camps Suella Bravman's going to end up falling into. Um, I, Sonia, have you, have you got any thoughts or any insight on this? Um, yeah, I think you were being quite optimistic about her abilities in in the blog. I, from what I've seen so far, I'm feeling more negative about her abilities. I'm expecting more of a sort of Pretty Patel level of incompetence, but it is early days. Um, the other thing to remember, of course, is that Pretty Patel has left the department in and the asylum system in such a state. It's difficult to see how that gets fixed or sorted without you know, making some changes that are very positive for those within the asylum system. And it's difficult to see where the political will for doing anything positive for that group of people will come from. Um, I'm talking specifically about the backlog, for example. The size of it now is so huge, it's difficult to see how that is going to be addressed without some sort of amnesty or similar. Um, Because, yeah, the size of it now is just unbelievable and it's really difficult to see how else they're going to get through that yeah and the, and one of the things the home office is quite careful not to publish in its stats is what the average waiting time is um and you know we know that the backlog's like one hundred and twenty thousand people plus but we don't really know how long it's taking people to get through the system as a result and it does seem to be years basically so you're sort of going back to the kind of initial collapse of the the asylum system back in the late 90s early 2000s when the the numbers really ramped up at that time but and this is one of Patel's achievements if you can call it that is you know, the, the numbers of asylum claims didn't actually go up that much it's just this this backlog kind of um really being self-created by by the home office being bad really badly run I mean, I think something practical that could happen quickly is to bin this inadmissibility process, which is just adding another six months of waiting time for no apparent reason. Um, and obviously that's contributing. I'm not sure the extent to which that is contributing to the high numbers we're seeing now in the backlog, but it, it must play a part in it. Um, and it doesn't seem to be having much effect. So getting rid of that seems like it would be a good start. Yeah, but really hard for her to undo where, where she come with her kind of politics behind her. It'd be, you know, that would be seen as being a liberal thing to do, and she can't be seen to to do that. Probably, we would guess. That's why um, I'm feeling negative about her because you know where is the political will to do anything useful? Yeah, and I would say you know if you if you are leaving people to wait for years, which you definitely shouldn't, then it's even worse if you leave them in destitution, penury, without the right to work. But again, I just can't see her increasing asylum support or or uh, you know or, or, or moving on the right to work or anything like that either. No, so that's pretty pessimistic, really. Yeah, I think on the contrary, there has been chat about cutting asylum support. So you know, nothing. I haven't heard anything positive yet. Um, I think maybe it was even in your blog, you you mentioned the uh, discussion of cutting asylum support, which is already at destitution levels. So it's difficult to see how that can be achieved, no matter how clever a barrister you are. Um, So, yeah, I guess we just need to wait and see. But I'm certainly not thrilled. No, (laughs) no numbers are thrilled. I think I was trying to be not too depressed when I was writing that. That Times report, though, which mentions the cuts to asylum support, they got something spectacularly wrong in that. So maybe they got some of the other stuff wrong as well. They they said she was expected to play a part in in the the reform of the the Bill of Rights stuff. Um, 
and you know just literally that day or, or the next day we found out that that was being that was being dropped and i think that we'd, we'd actually when we were divvying up the topics we said that was something you were going to talk about so do you want to to, to say a little bit about that yeah absolutely so that Times article is perhaps where this home office point has come in. Um, so in your post on the impact of the Bill of Rights on immigration cases, you referred to this as terrible, utterly pointless, vacuous legislation, um, which absolutely sums up everyone's response to it, really. Um, David Allen Green did what I thought was an excellent post following the withdrawal of the bill. I would recommend that people read that. But one thing he said in there was that the the changes would be led by the Home Office rather than the Ministry of Justice, which obviously alarmed me a lot. Uh, then I read Joshua Rosenberg's post about the withdrawal of the bill. He has expressed doubt at the Home Office's ability to wrest responsibility for the Human Rights Act from the MOJ. Um, we know that the government wants to target foreign national offenders and also people who are forced to cross the channel in order to come and claim asylum here. Um, so whether they're able to come up with any meaningful changes to the existing laws as they affect those groups, which are already very harsh, um, I guess it remains to be seen. But potentially those are things that the Home Office will seek to do itself rather than via the Ministry of Justice. Um, the other point, I think it's important to remember that, you know, reform of the Human Rights Act, I don't think it was in the 2019 manifesto. We now have a prime minister who's not faced the wider electorate. So I think it would be perhaps even more difficult for her to push something forward that was not in the manifesto. Um, so I guess the other consideration in relation to that point is that whatever does come back following the withdrawal of the Bill of Rights, um, hopefully the Lords will feel that they're in a better position to resist it than they did with the Nationality and Borders Bill which obviously was a manifesto commitment. So the government could say that they had a mandate for that, which is not the case here. Yeah, I think there was something in the in the Conservative Party manifesto about updating our human rights laws or something like that. I don't know, I haven't got the phrasing quite right there, I don't think, but the, it was it was mentioned. But that point about the Home Office trying to take over human rights reform is, is an interesting and worrying one. Yeah, I'm sure they'll try something um, because they need to look like they're doing something. Um, which, you know, as you pointed out in the blog post, was a lot of the contents of that Bill of Rights bill. Um, but yeah, we just need to wait and see what they try and come up with next. Yeah, and I suppose Home Secretaries like to have legislation, don't they? Um, yes. And Theresa May was quite unusual in that respect. You know, it was four years, I think she'd intended it to be three years, before um, her land, first landmark immigration bill sort of got passed through the Commons um, 2014. Um, and, you know, if we look at the Nationality and Borders Bill, one of the things I keep on saying about it is that a lot of it seems pointless. It, it's stuff that they could have done without primary legislation anyway. It's like they're, they were already resorting to filler with that legislation. What left is there that they need to legislate on? It's just there's, there's just they haven't got enough material to, to put an act through Parliament, but that probably won't stop them. We'll see. We'll see. Okay, well, that's a quick opportunity to mention another blog post that went out in August on pretended and actual government immigration policy, which is something that's been kind of aggravating me for a while, where you've got um, you know, the government kind of pretending to be um, quite restrictive about immigration, but then actually, and, and, and you know, to be fair, the end of free movement is undoubtedly you know, a massive restriction on immigration, um, but then also introducing all of these new schemes and so on. And um, this was triggered a bit by the news that Liz Truss, I think in some 
um, stump speech she was giving to farmers in Somerset or something, um, started saying that she would expand the SAWS scheme, as it's known to its friends, the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Scheme, if she becomes prime minister. And I thought, oh, I was looking at that fairly recently. And, and not that long ago, they said they were going to cut it. And so I, I went back and looked at what I'd, I'd been reading before. It had been, I think, at like 20,000. Um, they said they were going to cut it and it was down to 30,000. Uh, it's, it's already at 40,000 and, and Truss is talking about expanding it even more. And you've got all the pork butchers and the lorry drivers and the turkey farmers and, and all these kind of really quite odd niche um, sort of responses. So what, what the government says, and this won't come as a shock to anybody, will it? But what the government says and what the government does are quite often two different things. And that that's quite marked, I think, with immigration policy at the moment. And whether we'll see that changing with Braverman, who knows? I mean, you know, we, we don't know what her views are on immigration, whether she's got some types of immigration that she's happy to promote or doesn't mind or whatever, you know, any indication that she'd reform the, the family immigration rules or anything. I haven't seen anything remotely positive. Um, so I sort of imagine that it's it, it's going to carry on. But, you know, we have seen these kind of official documents from the Home Office. The Home Office as an institution does seem to have its its priorities. And, and Sonia, we, we have had something from the Home Office recently on at least aspects of, of what they hope to, to achieve over the next few years. Do you want to say a bit on that? Yes. I mean, this was something that gave me a heart attack when it popped into my inbox. Uh, the government's new plan for legal migration and border control. Uh, but essentially, it was just uh, more of the same. It was there was nothing actually really new in it. Um, it was things like phasing out of biometric residence permits. Uh, it was a lot about our brave new digital future. Essentially, I would recommend anyone who wants who wants to know the details to read John's post. Um, but essentially, moving to digital is a terrifying prospect for anyone who's seen tweets by the three million on all of the issues that we already see Europeans having with digital only status. And the idea of that being rolled out further is quite horrifying. And it just seems like a recipe for disaster. Um, They also talk about putting the customer at the heart of the new system. But as John points out in his article, there's still no mention of any kind of application progress checker, queuing system, live timescale estimator. And, you know, I think this is something that the Home Office really do need to look at because it's probably one of the main sources of anxiety for people who do have an application pending, whether that's immigration or asylum, is just having absolutely no idea of what's happening with it. Is someone even looking at it? When am I going to get a decision? So, you know, if, if they want to use these digital tools in a more positive way, then I think they need to look at something like that. Um, but no, instead, that there's no indication of anything like that happening. It's um, things like the the electronic travel authorization, all of that. It's just moving everything onto digital. Um, we'll see how it goes. But yeah, it, it is scary seeing what the three million three million are reporting about all of this. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's it does look like digitalization very much for government's convenience, doesn't it? Rather than, as you say, you know, this idea that the the user is at the heart of it is what the user is the home office, not not the individuals who are actually affected by this stuff. Um, You can't, I can't really see what the benefits are at all to to individuals. I can see the, the problems, but I can't see any benefits at all, really. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit depressing. It's a bit depressing. And that kind of admin, it's, um, you know, it's less, 
it's less interesting, perhaps in some ways, than you know what's the broad sweep of government immigration policy. Do they want more migrants, less migrants, what sort of migrants? But this is the day to day stuff that really impacts on people's lives, particularly where, like you know, we've got massive waiting times at the moment because of the knock on effects of Pretty Patel's various failures and the Ukraine visa scheme and so on. Um, so people are even more desperate to know than usual what the hell is going on with their visa application that they made you know weeks or months ago and still haven't heard back on exactly i mean it just it seems it seems like a simple fix that would have a big impact but obviously that's that's not a priority for the home office yeah yeah right so let's just talk quickly about um a couple of things that we put on the the website in august about stuff that we'd like to see so i put, put a sort of general call out to people to to, to submit slightly more speculative pieces or thoughtful pieces about things that we'd like to see done differently. And um, there was one on the adult dependent relative rules that you were going to, to pick up on, Sonia. Yeah, I thought this was a really interesting post about what is possibly one of the cruelest of the immigration rules. I know it's hard to pick one. Um, in particular, I found it interesting, it was mentioning the impact of the adult dependent relative rules on doctors working in the UK who have had to leave due to these rules preventing them from living together with their family. Um, this is apparently such an issue that several health bodies, including the BMA, have taken it up and they've written to the Home Secretary about it. Seems they haven't had a response. Um, and I think the purpose of the post was sort of a, a rally for people to submit evidence because the House of Lords Justice and Home Affairs Committee is currently uh, accepting evidence for an inquiry into the impact of all of the family immigration rules. That obviously includes adult dependent relatives. So there's the potential to get some useful recommendations, perhaps, um, for anyone who contributes to that. The deadline for written submissions is Thursday, the 15th of September. Presumably, there is the possibility for an extension, given I'm not sure um, how much Parliament is actually working over the next week or so due to the Queen's death. So anyone who is working in the area of family immigration and especially adult dependent relatives should certainly contribute views and evidence um, to try and affect some change here, because it really is. I mean, there's at least one case that's mentioned in that post as well. And it's just heartbreaking. It was about an 81-year-old Indian woman who I think had terminal cancer and her application was refused. Um, it's really just awful stuff and it would be great to see some improvements there. Yeah, I've, I was recently contacted by um, somebody I represented in court or, or their, their son a while ago um, where somebody who on a visit visa transpired to have far worse dementia than the primary had appreciated. She applied to to stay on on the under the ADR rules, the adult dependent relatives rules, and um, you know, Home Office refused. Appeal was allowed, and um, yes, it was you know, sort of sad but happy contact to to hear from. You know, she she passed finally, um, but it was it was a couple of years after the appeal, and at least she'd been with her family who were able to to care properly for her in this country. And those those are you know they are really horrible cases sometimes um and absolutely very much encourage people to to put in submissions to that inquiry they've got some i think they've got some really good people working on it as well actually so um it's it's well worth engaging with and of course we don't know what the outcome of those sorts of um bits of work by parliamentarians tends to be but you know with a new home secretary they they do sometimes try to balance being horrible with being nice as well to some degree and maybe you know the family immigration rules are 10 years old it's it's not worth giving up on on on, on reform we shouldn't give up on reform and um now's a good time to to push for things to change perhaps 
and you know at some point we will hopefully have a change of government and then these recommendations can be put forward again then any recommendations that do come out of the committee you know store all these things up if we can't use them successfully now hopefully we'll have more luck in the future yeah absolutely absolutely um there was an interesting post by um, a new contributor joseph sinclair on um, whistleblowing which i found interesting actually um with some points about the way that immigration law um very much discourages whistleblowing and what the solutions might be to that so i'm not going to go through that in in detail but i thought that was an interesting post and and worth reading and um, joseph also just to quickly mention sent in another post on account freezing orders which is something i've heard of but not familiar with and um, if you are an immigration practitioner joseph has written a, a blog post entitled account freezing orders what do immigration practitioners need to know? So there you go. If you are an immigration practitioner, it tells you what you need to know. Um, so I thought I'd mention that as well in case you you do want to read up on that. Okay, um, moving on. Um, I think when we were divvying up, Sonia, I said I was going to, to mention briefly the abolition of the police registration requirement for migrants, which was announced really badly, incompetently, um, sort of typically really for Pretty Patel's home office, where if you're a lawyer, if you are familiar with the the police registration scheme, you, you'll know that it's reflected in the immigration rules and also, in fact, in, in regulations and that a failure to comply with a, a condition on your visa, which, which this may well appear as if you're a relevant national, um, is a criminal offence. But the Home Office simply announced one day that you no longer had to comply with this 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 scheme uh, without actually amending the rules, without scrapping or amending the regulations, or without varying anybody's anybody's visa requirements. So I, I'm actually I haven't seen anything further on this. I actually don't know what the position is. I, the, the rules are still there. Um, I'm, I'm pretty confident that nobody is going to be prosecuted for failure to comply with this scheme after the Home Office told them they don't have to. But in in law, at least, you know, in theory, you are supposed to keep on doing this. The police aren't going to be interested anymore. So the actual practice of doing it is you know, it's become impossible. But um, why they couldn't have just waited until they'd amended the rules and scrapped the regulations properly and, and done it all in a sort of neat, legally effective way, I, I, I don't know. But but that's that's where we are. Um, have, have you got anything on on that, Sonia, or are you just happy to leave that as being a, a, a concise tale of incompetence? Yeah, classic Home Office, really. Yeah, yeah, I sort of do wonder what they're doing sometimes. Um, okay, well, that leads on to the scale-up visa, and you were going to tell readers, readers, listeners about that. Well, also readers, because if you want the full details, I recommend um, the excellent post, What is a Scale-Up Visa and How Does It Work?, that is long and has all the detail you need. I'm just going to give a very quick overview. Uh, Scale-up sponsors are organizations that are, they both have annualized growth of at least 20% for the previous three-year period uh, and a minimum of 10 employees at the start of the relevant three-year period. Uh, If you meet those requirements, you can get a scale-up sponsor license uh, and then the application for the visa person needs 50 points met through certificate of sponsorship, appropriate skill level and salary. That's similar to what we've seen in other routes. Then entry clearance or permission will be granted for two years. But this is the one of the interesting points about this. After six months, sponsorship duties end and the applicant is no longer tied to the sponsor. Um Permission to stay can be granted for a further three years without the need for sponsorship for those who have already had permission as a scale-up worker and to meet the salary requirements. 
If successful, they'll be granted a further three years permission to stay. Um, there are the other standard requirements such as English language, general grounds of refusal, sponsor notification duties. Those are all set out in detail in the post. Uh, other points to note, there's no immigration skills charge and this is a visa route which has settlement on offer at the end of it after five years. As pointed out in the article, this is a route where there's less red tape for sponsors. However, they then have less control over the workers they recruit because after that six-month period, they are free to move on elsewhere. So it's going to be very interesting to see the level of take-up of this new route and how long people are staying with their sponsors. Uh, I also wanted to mention briefly another work route that opened up recently, which is the High Potential Individual Visa. There are no sponsorship requirements for this route. People can also be self-employed. It's for those who have obtained degree-level qualifications from non-UK institutions that feature on two of specified lists of university rankings. This route does not lead to settlement, so anyone who wants to stay in the UK in the longer term will ultimately need to switch into a different route. And for more detail on that, see Nicola's post, which is how to apply for a high potential individual visa. Well, thanks very much, Sonia. It was um, and John Daniel, who is at Fragman, I think, who who wrote the the one on skeleton visas. My, I don't think this is going to surprise any regular listeners. I'm, my corporate immigration isn't really my thing, so I, I'm I'm not I'm not the most clued up person on how this goes in practice. But my impression is that the corporate immigration types seem quite enthusiastic about this one. I think presumably because of the um, relative lack of red tape. Um, you know, it's a relatively sort of ex- potentially expansive scheme. Um, although, as you, as you absolutely point out there, um, whether they remain enthusiastic when everybody buggers off after, <laughs> after the, the sort of set period, um, which is, how long did you say it was? Six months. So just six months um, that you're you're sort of tied to that sponsor. Um, yeah, whether they stay enthusiastic or not, I don't know. Um, so yeah, that's it's interesting. And the high potential visa, you know, it's great if you're one of the people who qualify, and it's it's sort of good, I suppose, in the sense that it's very clear whether you do or you don't. Um, but a lot of people don't, so so it's not going to be much use to them. Um, whereas this this perhaps does have does have potential. Hmm. Right. Thanks very much. That that was that was really helpful. Now on to one of my least favourite bits of the update podcast, which we'll talk, start talking about case law. And and rather than spread it out, I've like sort of self-flagellation grouped it all together. Um, so uh, I, I think I'm, I'm going to drop the the habit that regular re- readers, listeners will be familiar with of, of going through all the citations. I'm just going to use the case names. I think um, people can look these things up. There are, there are three cases that um, I, I'm just going to cover very quickly all together. Um, three cases, well, three blog posts. It's actually two cases. So the cases are Battle and then also, I think it's pronounced Celik, um, C-E-L-I-K, um, which are basically about undocumented extended family members applying for the EU settlement scheme. And the line that the upper tribunal has taken in these cases is that if you didn't make an application before the cutoff of the 31st of December 2021, I think I've got the year right, um, then you hadn't applied for facilitation as it's described in the in, in EU law in the directive. And therefore, basically, you don't benefit from the EU settled status scheme. And I, 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 I hope I'm wrong about this, but looking through the cases, looking through the withdrawal agreement, I think that's probably right. I, I'm really struggling to see an argument that the upper tribunal is wrong on that. 
They also say that you can potentially raise human rights arguments in these appeals if the Home Office consents. But as in the one case that I've advised on so far on this, you, know, you could amend, you could, you know, with the Home Office's permission, you could perhaps amend to, to introduce human rights. But I don't see that that's going to do very many people in this situation any good anyway, because human rights is by no means a panacea. It's very hard to succeed on. So yes, you could amend so that the tribunal um, can consider human rights, but you'd have to have a really strong case um, for that to be worthwhile. And in a lot of kind of durable partner type cases where you haven't got married yet, um, perhaps in a child case, you might stand the best chance. But in durable partner cases, you're, you're probably stuffed, basically. And it, there isn't an obvious there isn't an obvious solution to, to somebody's situation there either, um, other than you know, getting married and applying through the conventional um, immigration rules. And that, that's a pretty pessimistic view. I don't know if you've had a look at this as well, Sonia. Have you got have you got anything to say that sort of contradicts that? No, shaking your head there. No, nothing to add. Okay, so that's pretty depressing. Uh, a pretty depressing assessment, really. There. So, Sonia, there was one that you were going to talk about. The the um, blog title was "No Appeal Against Upper Tribunal Refusal to Set Aside Its Own Decision." Yes, this is DJ Pakistan and Secretary of State for the Home Department. It was in the Court of Appeal, and. This is another one of those cases um, where we see that people affected and their lawyers are still dealing with the aftermath of President Lane's unlawful COVID-19 guidance note uh, on determining appeals without a hearing. In this case, the appellant DJ had their appeal dismissed on the papers. And then after Mr. Justice Fordham's decision in the JCWI case that the guidance was unlawful, DJ applied to the upper tribunal to have uh, his decision set aside due to the reliance on the unlawful guidance. The application was made under Rule 43 of the Tribunal Procedure Upper Tribunal Rules 2008, which deals with setting aside a decision which disposes of proceedings. That application was refused, but in the meantime, DJ had also appealed to the Court of Appeal on the merits. They asked the Court of Appeal to also hear an appeal against the Rule 43 decision. Uh, the issue was whether there actually is a right of appeal against that decision. Uh, the Court of Appeal held that this is an excluded decision on the basis it was procedural, ancillary or preliminary, meaning that there was no right of appeal. So the court has said, essentially, if you are in this situation, then you should um, appeal in the normal way to the Court of Appeal, uh, raising the procedural irregularities in the UT's determination of the appeal because of the unlawful guidance. Um, and in the meantime, you can still make that application, the set-aside application under Rule 43. Then if your set-aside application is successful, fine, you're done. Otherwise, you continue with your uh, application for permission to appeal to the Court of Appeal on the basis of the procedural irregularities. So that's just the way that you deal with these cases going forward, essentially. What a mess. Just that that whole episode has been such a disaster. Um Well, yes. I mean, I was certainly at the sharp end of that at the beginning, and I have views. Um, (laughs) Do you want to share those with our listeners? Uh, Just, I... No. (laughs) (laughs) That could be a whole separate podcast. (laughs) Excellent. Well, we'll we'll, we'll try and take you up on that (laughs) at some point. Um, Okay, the next case was mine. And this is is a really sad, depressing case, I have to say. This involves um, Hubert Howard, um, who's now deceased. It's um, somebody who was very badly affected by the Windrush scandal that Theresa May sort of effectively launched. 
And um, he had applied for British citizenship many years after, you know, arguably he should have been a British citizen in the first place. And um, he was refused because of a 12-month suspended sentence. Now, the whole thing turned on whether it was lawful to apply the the normal good character um, requirements in the situation of somebody who was a, a, a Windrush scandal victim. The, the High Court held that uh, it, it wasn't and that that simply wasn't an option that was open to the Home Secretary. And the Court of Appeal has perhaps, unsurprisingly, I have to say, from a, a legal point of view, come back and said, well, actually, look, you, you can't say that it's completely irrational, that no reasonable Home Secretary could have could have reached that decision. And it, it's Lord Justice Underhill, who's kind of a, a, f- a friend of the, the Free Movement Update podcast in the sense that we, we cover quite a few of his um Court of Appeal decisions where he's become a kind of unofficial Mr. Fix-It um, for for things that have gone wrong in the upper tribunal and in the Court of Appeal as well in, in, in previous um, sort of previous cases. And he says this is quintessentially a policy matter of a kind with which the court should be very slow to interfere and uh, overturns the original decision. Now, in fact, um, Hubert Howard was recognised as a British citizen shortly before his death. Uh, whether that gave him any satisfaction, I, I don't know, but at least it was belatedly put right. So yeah, it's 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 a sad case. Uh, it's a shame that the the, the earlier decision was overturned, um, but it's it's legally not that surprising either. Well, yeah, on that one, I would just say just because you're legally entitled to do something doesn't mean you should. And this is you know indicative of the Home Office's attitude towards Windrush cases, which you know remains problematic to say the least. Anyway, that's just my two cents on that. I'm going to talk about um, blog post on Joseph permission to appeal requirements. I can take this one pretty shortly, really. Um, The title of the blog is Outgoing Tribunal President Criticises Home Office Practice of Drafting Anonymous Grounds of Appeal. Um, So in this decision, it was given by President Lane. He reiterated that a disagreement with the first tier tribunal's judges' findings of fact does not amount to an error of law. Um, He politely asked representatives of the Home Office in this case, but obviously it applies to both sides and the first-year tribunal to do things that they're not actually obliged to do. Uh, For the FTT, this was for judges to provide reasons for granting permission to appeal. Sensible would be useful. Um, And for the Home Office, he was asking that representatives do not lodge applications anonymously. I did find it hilarious that the Home Office signed the the form with an X (laughs) in relation. (laughs) And, you know, Lane was saying that the upper tribunal don't have access to what has happened in the first tier tribunal. They don't have details of the reps. They don't have access to the documents. And, you know, really my view on this case is I feel that Lane's time would have been better spent trying to facilitate access of UTAC to my HMCTS because this seems like a situation where all of this digital stuff can actually be used in a positive way. And I think it would have been more effective than this decision. What what do you think the chances are of the Home Office voluntarily agreeing to do what he asks here? Mm, Close to nil, if not actually nil. Yeah, I'd I'd say so as well. Right, now we're we're almost almost at the end. Um, You were going to cover the the last bit, which is on the um, Afghan evacuation litigation stuff that's been going on. Yes, there are three separate cases that were covered in this single blog post. Uh, so I'll try and rattle through those relatively quickly. The first one is S and AZ and Secretary of State for the Home Department. That's a court of appeal decision. Um, in the High Court, it was found unlawful for the Home Office to refuse to consider a request for leave outside the rules when it was made 
where there was also a request for permission to enter under ARAP, which is the Afghan Relocations and Assistance Policy. The issue was that the leave outside the rule application forms were completely unsuitable. They asked questions which were not easily answerable. So if people were to answer those questions inaccurately, they would be at risk of mandatory refusal. This is an issue that is not exclusive to this case. Um, With my work with the Unity Project, we've had similar issues previously where people had to, I mean, it's not quite the same issue, but people had to tick a box saying they were happy to be moved from the five-year route into the 10-year route. Um, So, you know, this I I thought of these first two cases as sort of computer says no cases where, you know, these online forms are problematic and it's difficult to navigate around when you don't fit into the precise boxes that the Home Office once filled out. Um, So the secondary problem with this case was that the leave outside the rules application form doesn't allow a request for a waiver or deferral of biometrics. Um, In the High Court, the Home Office argued that if someone could not enroll their biometrics, and I, I found this just a fascinating argument by the Home Office, they could potentially make a false entry on the form by naming a visa application centre where they knew that they would be unable to enrol their biometrics there and then separately contact the Home Office to tell them of the issues in enrolling biometrics. Um, The High Court did not accept what the Home Office had said, that they would not prejudice any application that had been made on that basis, and I think that was the correct approach. Um, The Court of Appeal sided with the High Court and acknowledged that, you know, that's a difficult position to put an applicant in, and I don't really know how you cope with that as a lawyer as well. You know, telling someone to lie on their um, application form is obviously difficult. So as a result of this, presumably, the Home Office have now amended the Leave Outside the Rules application form to include the possibility of obtaining a waiver or deferral to provide biometrics. So that is a positive result in that one. Um, The next one, it was a similar situation where uh, the case is SH and Secretary of State for the Home Department. This is in the High Court. The claimant had applied under ARAP and also for leave outside the rules. The Home Office had refused to acknowledge the leave outside the rules application on the basis that the ARAP form was not a visa application form. In this one, I I found this quite interesting, this point. Um, The Home Office was arguing that the ARAP scheme was not the route to entry most closely matched to SH's circumstances because he had a brother-in-law in in the UK. So they were saying that he should have applied under um, either the family reunion or the family migration routes. This argument was knocked back and it was held. He was not applying for family reunion, but he was applying due to his fear of the Taliban. Um, The other argument that was made by the Home Office was that the application for leave outside the rules was not actually made at the same time as the Arab request. It was held that this made no difference. Um, So the Home Office now needs to go away, consider and decide that leave outside the rules application. Um, I just thought this was also a good example of the lack of so-called safe and legal routes to come to the UK for those who do not come within the very strict parameters of the limited of the limited existing schemes. So the third one is JZ and Secretary of State for the Home Department. That was in the High Court. So there have been a few of these cases involving Afghan judges, and this is one of those. This was a challenge to refusal to grant him permission under the Arab um, policy. His application was refused on the basis that he had not shown a meaningful enabling role alongside the UK government. 
Um, he argued that he'd been treated differently to other judges, but the Home Office said that the other judges who had been granted permission under ARAP had worked at courts um, which the UK government had directly supported or worked closely with. And in this case, uh, JZ's work on terrorism cases had actually ended in 2011, and all 11 judges who succeeded under ARAP were actively serving in the anti-terrorism court in, in Kabul um, from 2020 to 2021. So essentially, being a judge is not in and of itself enough to be successful under ARAP. And the court set out some of the relevant factors that would need to be considered. Yeah, some really, um, I don't know quite what word to use, but some really wacky arguments from the Home Office in a, in a couple of those cases. Just otherworldly. Yeah. Um, I, I love the one about just make a false entry on the form, as if that doesn't have any consequences. And the, the idea that... Uh, an advocate can actually say that in court um, is just, I, I think, quite striking, actually. And the only other insight I've really got on this is that I really should have edited this piece so it doesn't say Arap and Lotter um, quite so much. Lotter is not Lord of the Rings, it's Leave Outside the Rules for those who, who sort of miss the initial introduction to what those acronyms actually mean. Right, that, that, that's it for, for August 2022. So, Sonia, thanks so much for helping me with that. And... Um, um, back next month, and and you know we'll we'll discuss afterwards while while people aren't listening whether you'd be willing to come back. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye bye. <laughs>